Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. With the 2022 midterms fast approaching, the heads of our Washington, D.C. Technology and Telecommunications Group, Al Motter and Greta Joins, provide perspective and banter from both sides of the aisle on the upcoming elections, Senate and House leadership predictions, thoughts on what will happen in the lame duck, and legislative priorities through the end of the year. Hi there, this is Al Motter and Greta Joins from Brownstein Hyatt, and welcome to our latest podcast. Greta and I are the head of our tech and telecom practice at Brownstein, but the reason we're here to talk with you today is that we are so excited about the upcoming uh, midterm elections. Although I will note that Greta, as a Republican, is a little more excited than I am. I, I'm approaching them with a little bit of nervousness. Uh, but the two of us are very involved in politics. My background is on the Democratic side as a senior fundraiser for candidates nationwide, whether they're governors, uh, senators, presidential candidates. I try to be involved as much as I can to help my team win. I've canvassed in presidential races and Senate races knocking on doors. I've done presidential advance. And of course, as I mentioned, I try to raise as much money as I can for Democrats. Of course, Greta and I like to argue because she does the exact same thing uh, on the other side, and I'll, I'll pass it over to her to share a little bit of that background. Thank you, Al. And I would note that, um, yes, I am much more excited about the midterms than Al is, I think, at least at this stage in the game. Again, my name is Greta Joins. I co-chair a tech and telecom practice here at Brownstein with Al. I worked for a very conservative Republican in a very blue state in Illinois for a long time. So I, I certainly have a unique perspective and it's an adventure every cycle, but this one in particular looks interesting, I think, for a number of reasons. Well, Greta, we've been through a lot of these. How do you see things and, and where do you see the winds blowing? You know, everything right now indicates that things are swinging towards the Republicans. I think the average of the generic ballot ha has Republicans up four points um, nationally. Do note, however, national generic ballot polls are, are kind of nonsense. And they're, <laughs> and they're you know, they're, they're something I think political junkies like to look at. But when it comes down to individual races, you know, those type of numbers don't matter that much. I, I think that in particular, I am watching um, a few different Senate races um, that I think, you know, have been on the bubble because of Republican candidates really struggling to sort of take hold um, in, in their states for, you know, different reasons. But I think, you know, valid all the same. And I think in particular, what is interesting is sort of the, the down ballot phenomenon, right, is especially as you look at governor candidates. In, in all of the swing states, I think that they have all impacted, you know, these federal races pretty significantly. I think if you if you look at Georgia, for example, Senator Warnock and Stacey Abrams are running very different campaigns and focusing on an entirely different set of issues. And to be honest, it's it's very interesting. You know, Senator Warnock obviously is in the United States Senate. He seems to be focusing more on issues that are important to Georgians. And Stacey Abrams seems to have a very larger macro view of, you know, what what I would say, I, I think that she's looking at sort of a broader electorate um, outside of Georgia, if, if I if I had to guess at this point. And I think the same thing is um, you can also look at in Arizona, where Carrie Lake is just as conservative as, as Blake Masters. 
but she's polling much further ahead than where Blake Masters is, at least in this point. Um, I think she's probably at four to five points over where he is. So um, it's it's an interesting cycle for sure. Well, I think those two races are great examples of what's going on because, you know, we always say candidates matter. And when you looked at these Senate races a few months ago, we were excited on the Democratic side because Reverend Warnock was clearly a better candidate than Herschel Walker and Scott Kelly, Senator Kelly, former astronaut, was clearly a better candidate than than Blake Masters. But then, as you point out, on the Republican side, the governors have races in those states at the same time, and they have the better candidates on the governor's side. And so even though we have an advantage in the Senate race, we may lose because the Republican governor is going to do so much better and maybe pull the Senate candidate along. And so that's an interesting dynamic. In terms of House races, I think, for people looking to see what's going to happen on election night, they ought to focus their attention on Virginia. There's some House races in your state where you live that are very competitive. And there's some moderate Democrats like Abigail Spanberger, who if she loses and it's called early, that will be a, a indicator of, I think, a bad night for our party uh, and a good night for yours. Yeah. And I, and I would note that I do think that Virginia is an interesting state to watch in in particular when when it comes to some of these individual races. I think that what is probably more interesting at this stage in the game is how difficult it is for Democratic candidates in very blue states to ultimately gain hold. I think if you look at Oregon, if you look at California, if you look at New York State, there's a number of candidates who are in Biden plus 20 districts that are now polling essentially even. Like, it's shocking to me the amount of money that's going into, into the Sean Patrick Maloney race in uh, in New York. There's a couple of races in California that were Biden plus 17, Biden plus 20, where, you know, the NRCC and the DTRIP are investing huge sums of money here in, in the near term. Now, we are just, a couple weeks out, right? People are just throwing money around. So no one is caught, you know, at, at the end saying you should have, like, this was so close. If you'd invested more money, like it would have saved the day or it would have pushed them over the top. But it's sort of shocking. And I, I think that sort of goes to where the Democrats in these very blue states have gone and, and the issues that they have focused on. Um, you know, extended school closures is is a huge problem. The the amount of crime that has been in these states that, um, you know, really has not been addressed in any sort of substantive way. Democrats are getting hit significantly on issues like ending cash bail, which is sort of wonky, but it matters to a lot of people who feel that criminals are not being put in jail and now their communities are unsafe. Well, it, you know, in politics, when you're explaining, you're losing. And we're explaining on these issues and you all are are making crisp points and it's you have better messaging at, on those issues than we do. You know, I think for listeners who are Democrats, they may say, well, wait a minute. I mean, under Democratic leadership, they passed the gun control bill and they passed the infrastructure bill and they passed a bill, a major bill on climate change. But I would suggest that we don't do a good job messaging those things because they're complex and when there's problems, like you point out, where people are tired and angry because of school closings and they're sick and tired of restrictions and they're done with COVID mentally and there's crime in their communities. And whether it's fair or not, 
um, Republican messaging on defund the police, which is really only a very narrow sliver of our party, it still resonates with voters. And so we're in a we're in an uphill playing field, frankly, on these issues. I also think, you know, after the Dobbs decision came out in August, Democrats invested something around one hundred million dollars in messaging around abortion. And it's it's not to say that it's not important to some people. Um, obviously, I, I think that the broader set of the electorate, they might care, but it's not their top issue. And, you know, I just as a, an aside, right, when you talk about inflation, you talk about the economy. Last week, I took a online grocery order I had placed in uh, June 2020, and I added all those same items back into my cart today. And it was 42% higher, right? And so, you know, we talk about inflation percent for things that Americans consume every week, it is significantly higher than that. And, you know, so when you talk about, you know, that inflation number, it's it's hitting people in their da- daily lives far more significantly than I think is accurately reported by the media. So um, you mentioned the Dobbs case, and I do want to talk about it just briefly, because one thing that's important to understand is that it's conceivable, although I think unlikely, that the polling doesn't reflect a changed electorate. That, And if you look at the registration numbers from June through August, September, we've had the highest number of regist- new Democratic registrants in two categories, women and young voters than we've ever had before in an election. That doesn't mean, by the way, that anything is going to change and that we're going to all of a sudden snatch victory away from defeat. But it is interesting, and it raises the question of whether the polls are accurate. You know, historically, I would say you guys tend to outperform the polls in the recent elections. And so the question now is, has that changed? I don't know. But it is conceivable that no one really knows what's going to happen on election night. But let's make some predictions. Tell everybody what you think is going to happen in the House and the Senate and where it's going to end up. Um, I am very bullish on the House. Um, I think that we're going to pick up 30 to 32 seats. Wow, that's very specific. It is very specific. But I think that things are trending well enough towards us that the races that, you know, we're all of a sudden getting involved in, um, in particular in Oregon, in California, in New York State, all of those, I think, are achievable. In in particular, when you look at how close the governor race is in Oregon and New York, I, I think that in the Senate, Republicans will end up being 52 uh, Senate seats. I think that we're going to win in Nevada. Um, I think that we're also potentially, if Governor Kemp wins by 10 in Georgia, which is a high bar, but possible, I think that Herschel Walker could win on election night. I also think that if um, Carrie Lake can win in Arizona by five or more, then Masters will win in Arizona as well. So those are my two bubbles. My, my one question is, if we go to a runoff in December in Georgia, do voters come out to vote for Herschel Walker twice? And that is, I think, sort of the unknown at this point. Well, and I would say just on that race, if that state in a runoff is the difference between a 50-50 Senate and Democratic control and Mitch McConnell controlling, we will have a surge of voters, right? uh, in my opinion. And that could actually carry Warnock to victory, which is a little contrary to conventional wisdom. Look, I'm not going to say the House is going to stay Democratic. I think if things continue on the trend line we're on now, 
year 30 to 32 is perhaps accurate. I'm hopeful that our voters are more energized uh, than normal in a midterm because of Dobbs, because of their concerns about democracy, because of their disgust for some of these candidates. And we somehow keep the margins down to 15 to 20. But it wouldn't shock me um, if you're right. In the Senate, I think it's still conceivable the Democrats retain control. And I always like to talk about sleeper races. And I'll talk about a couple on each side. We could stun the country and win a Senate race in North Carolina. Sherry Beasley, uh, statewide elected multiple times as a judge, fantastic African-American candidate who is just simply a better candidate than Ted Budd, who's the Republican. And she has been right with him neck and neck. And that state, while it's in the South, has been very, very tight in the last four cycles. The other one I'll point to is Tim Ryan in Ohio. He is by far the best Democratic Senate candidate this cycle. He understands voters where they live and how they live. And he addresses them with dignity and respect and empathy. His opponent, J.D. Vance, is a bit of a chameleon shyster. At least we've painted him that way successfully. And I think we could pull an upset there. On our side, I think an upset could happen in Colorado, a purple state where incumbent Senator Michael Bennett, uh, while a moderate and generally well-liked among the voters, has not uh, resonated in, uh, if you look at the polling. And on the Republican side, uh, Joe O'Day is really probably the best candidate on, uh, of all of the Republican Senate candidates in terms of trying to pull an upset. He is a uh, moderate. He is pro-gun and also pro-choice. And that's a recipe that could go over quite well there in our home state of Colorado. Those are three Senate races I'd watch. Everybody likes to talk about Pennsylvania because it's so interesting. I mean, Dr. Oz versus this curious Lieutenant Governor Fetterman. Um, I actually think that race is going to stay in your hands after the debate that happened, which was, quite frankly, sad to watch. But so what happens then? So if, if Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker, does he have the same problem that John Boehner and, and uh, Paul Ryan had uh, in managing their caucus? I mean, you guys have some we do, too, by the way. But you guys have some kind of crazy people in the Republican Party. I don't think so. I mean, I you know, it, it's it's certainly a different dynamic on the Republican side, I think, mainly because, you know, we don't keep the same speaker for 50 years like <laughs> Like they, they, they do on, on the other side, right? You know, there's a lot more changeover both in Republican leadership at the committee level and also at the leadership level. I think Kevin McCarthy has done a pretty good job of creating a, a pretty robust conversation between, you know, the the moderates and the hardcore conservatives so that they all feel heard. I I, I think that... Um, he's a quite very different speaker than John Boehner and certainly Paul Ryan. You know, Paul Ryan was super wonky with his, you know, slide decks and his charts. And, you know, I mean, that that was a ways and means tax nerd as speaker, right? Like Kevin McCarthy is, you know, like, you know, a California University student body president, right? Like knows everybody, knows when their kids' birthdays are, you know, like he, he's just, he's, he's very familiar. And I, I think that members really like that. And so I, I don't think that he's going to have some of the issues that I think a lot of people assume that he will. I, I think that there's a lot more people that are being invited to the table than I think is probably well known at this point. But he's not going to show up at any Marjorie Taylor Green rallies, is he? 
Well, I don't know. I think, you know, Marjorie might show up to his rally. Okay. You know, I it's it'll it'll be interesting. I think the importance of the House Republican conference is making sure that everyone is included and I'm giving everyone a voice. Maybe not everyone has to have the loudest voice, but everyone should and will get an opportunity um, to engage. And I, I think that's how Kevin McCarthy is going to be looking at the next Congress. You know, listening to you describe him, it's interesting to me because you're describing the role, the way Chuck Schumer manages the Senate Democratic Caucus. He knows everybody's cell phone. He knows everybody's birthday. He knows whether they have a cat or a dog. And he always talks to as many people as he can before he makes a decision, which is the exact opposite, by the way, of how Nancy Pelosi rules her caucus. She rules with power and force. And everyone always says, well, how is she going to get these things passed? And how could they possibly have achieved all these things? The reason is that she somehow was able to get every one of these people, save one or two, to vote for those bills, despite a lot of them objecting to them. And I don't know if we'll ever see a speaker again with that much power. And there'll be a lot of great books written about her. But I I just wanted to note that. So we get to a, a lame duck. We have most likely, we've agreed, a Republican House a very close Senate one way or the other. You know, it strikes me, I'll lay this out and and you react, please. There's going to be kind of like must-pass bills and then bills that people wish they could pass or hope they could pass, right? So there'll be the NDAA, the the defense authorization, which passes every year. There'll be the spending bills, which will most likely congeal into an omnibus of some sort. And I would note that um, in the Senate, uh, Chairman Leahy and Ranking Member Shelby of the Appropriations Committee are retiring and so they very, very much want to have one last big spending bill that they can put their their imprint on. And on the wish pass side, you've got things like Democrat on our side, marriage equality, child tax credit, um, although some Republicans want to move with that. And then there's this safe banking bill that Senator Schumer cares about to help bring cannabis into the mainstream economy. And then there's a bipartisan bill, the Electoral Vote Count Act, that I think of all the ones I've just listed is actually the most likely to get done. And then there's two that are kind of maybes, more aid to Ukraine and potentially changing the debt limit higher to get that off the table. So how how do you see all that? Well, you know, I I think there's going to be a few things that move in lame duck. I think what moves in lame duck depends on what happens in a couple of weeks or maybe longer. Right. I think it's going to take a while to count votes in some of these states and we may end up in a runoff in Georgia, which sort of changes the dynamic of everything. Um, I think that what will happen, you know, if if Republicans take over and win, then I think there will be a number of nominations and judges that Schumer will want to move um, in December. And that will take up some floor time from maybe some legislative priorities that Democrats would have had. There's still a lot of open spots within the Biden administration that have not gone through confirmation yet. So which will be near impossible to get confirmed um, should Mitch McConnell take over in the Senate. I think that it would be a huge relief for Kevin McCarthy to not have to deal with debt ceiling as sort of a a first first shot across the bow in in the next Congress. So I, I think that will be something that would be on a wish list item, right? If if you want to move X, Y, and Z, then we're going to deal with debt ceiling in December. I do think, though, looking forward to next year, you know, some of the must-pass stuff will be a little bit trickier. I think, in particular, Republicans really want 
to focus on the NDAA, given its must-pass status. I think that there is a really strong push to uh, rehire back anyone in, um, you know, the on DOD payroll who was fired because they they didn't uh, get the vaccine. I, I think it, as you look sort of broadly throughout the federal government as well, I, I think there'll be a lot of focus on that. I think aggressive oversight for the next year and a half before we're doing this podcast again and talking about presidential election will be really um, heavy and I think very important. I, I think there's going to be a number of issues that um, in particular House Republicans really, really want to focus on. Um, I think Walensky and Fauci will be offered um, office space in <laughs> in the House um, so they have a place to hang out in between hearings. You know, maybe we should put uh, Fauci and Rand Paul in like the octagon and see who wins. I mean, those two have gone at it a lot in hearings already. Yeah. And in a majority, Rand Paul will be chairman of health. So it could happen. Could certainly be possible. So what do those oversight hearings look like? I mean, I think what you're saying is Jim Jordan and others are going to hold hearings to try to make the Biden administration look either negligent or having acted inappropriately. Is that what you're suggesting? I think that in general, Republicans feel that they asked a lot of questions of the Biden administration, in particular during the start of it and during the public health emergency, emergency that then wasn't the public health emergency. Now we're back so we can you know, relieve student debt. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of messaging that Republicans um, really want to hammer in on, um, in particular, that I, I don't think Democrats in particularly want to focus on or have solid responses to. I, I think that there will be a lot of talk about energy prices. Um, I was on the Hill back in 2008 um, when, you know, we had a, a significant team of House Republicans that really just spent their days hammering the majority on energy prices and 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 costs and, and how that affected their constituents in particular in, in rural and exurban communities where you have to drive for extended distances every day. And um, I, I think that Republicans feel it's, it's tone deaf for Secretary Buttigieg and, and the administration to just suggest that everyone buy electric cars, right? And I, I, I think that um, will certainly be an aggressive talking point in addition to the public health stuff. And it, and then in particular, I do think there's going to be a lot of talk on schools and parents. Um, I saw a poll the other day that said parents were breaking um, 65% plus for Republicans, I think in particular because they feel that their children um, have suffered needlessly uh, during the pandemic, myself included. So I, I think that where those dollars have gone to, you know, help students recover from, you know, the, the problems caused by extended school lockdowns and closures, I, I think no one's really figured out how to spend that money. And the administration hasn't really given a ton of thought or guidance um, as, as to how to get students back to where they should be and help them both mentally and academically. Well, that's a lot. So here's what I'm going to say now is uh, I laid out a bunch of things that were accomplished in the last Congress, which, by the way, are shocking, given the narrow majorities the Democrats had. But it was nonetheless one of the most accomplished Congresses 
in our lifetime, whether you like the bills or not. I may have liked them. You may not have. But the next Congress, I'm just going to say, is not going to have that happen. Um, there's not going to be major legislation that passes. And it's going to be in part because the Senate and the House are going to be markedly different. They're not going to be controlled by the Democrats. And or anything the Republicans try to put through is likely to be vetoed by the president. The one exception, you mentioned energy prices. I actually think divided government makes it more likely we could have some reasonable energy policy that gets done on a bipartisan basis. You know, you'll have people like Joe Manchin and uh, Lisa Murkowski and other moderates who will try to put something together that could pass presidential signature, which would probably be good for the country. I mean, we've all seen what happened when we're not energy independent over the last six months. And so that's an area where I would think Republicans would want to focus to point to the fact that under Biden, we haven't been as energy independent, but a lot of Democrats would want to focus on it as well as they think about the upcoming election and trying to make America stronger. So that's an area where I think we could have some some bipartisan agreement. I'll also say that if uh, Republicans win both the House and the Senate, Donald J. Trump will announce he's running for president again. Uh, and I'll note, he's already recruited a notable Virginia uh, Republican operative to help him plot that out. So for those of you who like uh, the former Red Menace, you know, <laughs> good for you. Uh, for those of you like me who don't, I see that with apprehension. Although I also would say that while we'll have another podcast on 2024, he's probably one of the candidates that's easiest for us to beat if we have a strong nominee. Another thing I'll mention, and, and let's talk a little bit about House and Senate leadership. You know, we've, we've agreed on McCarthy being in charge. On my side, you know, I think if the Democrats lose, most people think Speaker Pelosi may retire. She's had an incredible career. This last Congress accomplished amazing things. And why stick around for the nonsense of, in her mind, Republican leadership? And that, that creates a huge void. You've got Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn, who have been around forever, um, respected, loved, but also octogenarians. And there's young leadership like Hakeem Jeffries and others who are, are, are hankering to, to move into the top. Chairman Schiff uh, from California has expressed an interest uh, as well in leadership. And so I think it'll be very interesting post-election to see how that comes together. If I was a betting man, I'd say Hakeem Jeffries will become the House Minority Leader under Speaker McCarthy. What's going to happen on your side? Well, we have a, a very contentious race for a whip, um, assuming that Republicans take the majority on the House side. I, I honestly, I couldn't tell you right now um, who's going to win that race. I think it's 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 getting a little bit nasty, but um, hopefully, you know, it will be resolved in the next few weeks, and we can sort of all, you know, gather the team and move on. I think there are. Um, you know, regional and political differences between all three candidates, right? You know, Jim Banks is very conservative and is more of a hawk. And then I, you know, Tom Emmer, you know, potentially could be coming off, you know, a huge win uh, for Republicans in the midterms. And so, you know, how, like, how do you not reward, you know, what will ultimately be what gives Republicans the ability to even have a majority whip? And then, you know, we, we have, uh, another candidate um, who comes from Georgia. And, uh, you know, I think when I, I mentioned the sort of the, the regional differences, I think it's important to note when you look at the House Republican Conference, sort of where folks come from 
and and how that ultimately plays, right? You know, you have the Texans who are a huge voting block and really demand representation within the conference. You know, Texas is a uh, like they get their own seat on the steering committee, right? There's 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 just one one person who represents you know the Texas delegation, and that, I I think that if we can get to a point where you know sort of the whole southeast part of the country, you know, votes in block. Then, you know, Drew Ferguson, who is, you know, very close with Steve Scalise, um, you know, he potentially could, you know, win, too. So it's there, there's certainly different personality dynamics. And I the way that these races are voted on within the conference itself is interesting. Right. You could have someone, you know, lose on the first ballot. And then, but not, you know, sort of be in, in last place and then ultimately go on to win on, you know, third, fourth ballot. So I think there's a lot of people keeping their powder dry. And frankly, if we do win big, the freshman class could be the big, biggest voting block that, you know, no one has really approached yet. So we'll see. Well, really interesting. And I'm going to say in the Senate, there's not going to be a change. If the Republicans take over, Mitch McConnell will be the leader, Chuck Schumer will be the minority leader. The rest of the leadership team on both sides will be roughly the same, maybe some minor changes, but not nearly the intrigue um, as in the House. Tell me on your side, who is the one person or persons who might be able to take down Donald Trump if he runs? DeSantis, for sure. And I think that Ron DeSantis has amassed something like $150 million, right, And already. And I think that the actions that he took during COVID to keep Florida open and quote free, I think are really persuasive to people who um, are in other communities who really did suffer needlessly, in my opinion, for two, two and a half years. And um, I would point to Gavin Newsom's in-laws who uh, left the state of California and moved to Florida to donate money to Ron DeSantis as a prime example of, of those type of voters. I, it, it would be hard for me to see someone else sort of, you know, really take that mantle from from DeSantis. But I think the age of, you know, having two to three individuals running in these primaries is over. I think you're always going to see 10 to 15 people to, to start out a presidential primary and then it'll get, you know, uh, cut down significantly over, you know, the, the primary period. Well, I can't wait to see that fight if it happens. And I'm very curious what nickname uh, Trump's going to come up with for DeSantis. He's, he seems quite good at that. On our side, of course, the big question is, does President Biden run again? I know you all like to post memes about him that seem like he's wandering around. And some of them are real and some of them are a little bit doctored. But, you know, regardless, it's a question. And uh, I will say, talking to Democratic senators with whom I'm friends privately, they have anxiety about it. And so the party is uncertain headed into uh, the next two years. And it'll be, if he doesn't, the most wide open field in our history. But that's for another podcast. And I, I really enjoyed doing this with you today. And uh, I will say that that is a wrap. Thanks so much, Al. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.